Some of the scariest words in the English language may be, we need to talk. Am I right? You're sitting on your couch at home in the evening and your spouse comes and turns off the TV and says, we need to talk. It's going to be a late night. If you're a teenager and you're in your room and mom or dad comes and closes the door behind them and says, we need to talk, you're in big trouble. <laughs> if, you, if your teacher says to you after class, hey, stay after class, we need to talk, uh, you've got some explaining to do. If, you're, if your boss says, calls you into his office or her office and says, we need to talk, uh, you're in trouble in, in some ways or another, in one way or another. Uh, we need to talk is a, is a, is a scary concept, and, uh, and, and so when you hear those words, what happens inside of you? I can tell you what happens inside of me. Uh, I'm getting ready to defend myself. Uh, I'm about to face some sort of criticism, or I'm about to have to explain my behavior, or whatever it is. I'm about to have to defend myself, and so my defenses go up. I'm like, uh, I need to, I, I'm, I'm about ready to get into a fight, and my defenses uh, go up. And uh, that's my natural reaction. Uh, I wonder if that is the reaction that the Lord wants me to have. If, if, if the Lord wants me to throw up my de defenses and, and get ready to to uh, shoot down any criticism, be, get ready to win any argument, if that's, that's the Lord's will. This morning I want us to talk about something much broader than just how we handle conversations that begin with we need to talk. I want us to think about our lives and why it is that so often we feel the need to defend ourselves and to win an argument, and to, and to, uh, and, and to fight against criticism, or, or, to, or to justify our, our behavior. Now, before we go any farther, I will say there are times when we need to do that. There are times when we need to defend ourselves, or, or to stand up against what is uh, wrong, or to, or to fight for what is right. But this morning I want to talk about the times when we feel the need to defend ourselves that are rooted in our pride. Because oftentimes I feel like we uh, have a tendency to, to want to dig in our heels or to win the argument or whatever it is, and, it, and it's motivated by the pride that is within us. When we are motivated by that pride, it, it, uh, it doesn't come from our identity with the Lord, and it doesn't, do, and it doesn't uh, help our relationships with those that we love and care about, right? When, we're when those uh, defense mechanisms rise up in, uh, within us and it's motivated by pride, then relationships with those that we love and care about get hurt. Rich Villadas, who is a pastor in New York City, uh, writes, and I think this is helpful, fractured relationships we experience emerge out of our inability or refusal to lower our defenses. Instead of seeing companions, we see competitors. 
People who disagree with us are viewed as threats to be eliminated. The walls we build are for one reason, to protect the false self. And what he means by the false self is this image that we have created in our own hearts of who, of who we are and how we should be treated. It's not an image that God has created. God has told us that you are a child of God, that you are saved by grace. But we have created this, we oftentimes create this false image of ourselves that says we should be treated this way. And, our, and, and those that, that are around us, or those that we have a relationship with, they should treat us this way. And we deserve to be respected, and we deserve to have this and that, and I've got experience, and I've got knowledge, and I've got wisdom, and all these things. And, and we build up this image of ourselves that is, that is really a false image. It's not rooted in the gospel. It's not rooted in what God says about us. It's rooted in pride. And it is, out of that, it is out of that false self that's rooted in pride that leads us into trouble. You see, our, our pride battles against the humility that it takes to rest in God and to lean on Him. Our interior defenses get in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with others because God has said we are His child he is our Lord. He's the one in charge of our life. He's the one that is to lead us and to guide us and to protect us. To not take that responsibility on on our own, but to, in, but to live our lives in light of who we are in Christ. We live for an audience of one. Not to please everyone else, not to prove that we are right, but we live to please the Lord. Okay, so there's a story in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings. And so open up to 2 Kings. I'll give you a minute. It's not a book we open to all the time. So after the, after the first five books, which we call the Pentateuch, are the history books. So we've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, then 1 and 2 Kings. Today we're in 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're looking at a guy named Nahum. Nahum was a, was a well-respected man. Nahum had won uh, uh, military battles. Uh, the king looked at him positively. In fact, you mentioned to someone as you're walking down the street, oh, Nahum, they'd say, oh, yeah, Nahum, what a good guy. Nahum's got respect. He's got authority. He's got a position of power. Nahum seems to have everything working in his direction. He's a good guy. But, but as we see here in 2 Kings, he's got two problems. One is he's got a physical problem. He's, uh, he, he's, uh, he's, become, he's gotten leprosy. He's contracted the disease of leprosy. That's his physical problem. The second problem that we're going to see is he's got a pride problem. He's got a spiritual problem. Now, these two problems, as we're going to see, kind of go hand in hand. God wants to heal him of his leprosy, but the only way that he's going to get healed of his leprosy is if he gets rid of his pride, if he lowers his defenses. So we're in 2 Kings 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Before I read those uh, Verses. Let me just pause and ask that God would bless the reading and the preaching of his word. God, as we open up your scriptures now, we pray that you would come and speak to us. God, uh, I've been wrestling with this sermon all week because I feel like I'm preaching it to myself, first of all. 
but I feel like uh, this probably applies to a lot of us in this room. God, our, God, our marriages are struggling because of our pride, our inability to lower our defenses, our, our relationship with our parents or with our kids, our, our relationship with friends or co-workers. God, I pray this morning that by the help of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to receive your grace and to lay down that pride to lower our defenses, that we would be led by your Spirit. So God, speak to us now through your Word. Impress these truths upon us and help us not to just understand it intellectually, but to apply it to our lives and be transformed by it spiritually. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Kings uh, 5, verses uh, 1 through 14. It says, Now Nahum was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Nahum's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Nahum went to his master and told him what the girl, uh, uh, told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Nahum left, taking with him, Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Nahum to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God that I can kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Nahum went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Nahum went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the, of the Lord his God, wave his hand over uh, the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and, and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Nahum's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. 
Leprosy was a scary disease, especially back then. It still is today, but we have vaccines and and, uh, prescriptions. But back then, there was no such medical treatment. You got it. It was basically a death sentence. It was a disease that uh, that affects the nerve endings uh, in your body so that the skin and the muscle uh, would, would die slowly. It said that it would take 30 years for this disease to run its course. So you got it. Uh, you, you're going you're gonna to be suffering from a lo- for a long time. The disease would rot away at your skin to the point where people would lose fingers and toes and sometimes whole uh, limbs would fall off their body. And it wasn't just the physical pain that Nahum would experience. It was the psychological pain, too, because uh, lepers were put on the outside. We've just got done going through COVID-19, and, it's, and, it's still, uh, and, and we can still get it. But we got so used to quarantining. You get COVID, and you're, you're locked in your bedroom for two weeks. Well, at, this, at, at the time of this writing, you get leprosy, you quarantine for the rest of your life, you're put into a leper colony. So for Nahum, it's not just the disease. He's got this reputation. He walks down the street and people bow and, uh, and they give him honor and respect. Now he's going to go from being the big man on campus to being an outcast. He's going to live in a, a leper colony. So it seems that Nahum tries to keep this uh, disease a secret for as long as he can. Like nobody knows about it. He's not been out. He's not been cast out. My guess is he's wearing his b- battle armor around, anything that keeps uh, people from being, seeing his skin. But there are two people that live with him, his wife and his wife's maidservant. And, uh, and they see him without his armor, armor on, and they know that he is, uh, that he is uh, battling leprosy. In fact, even though his wife's servant is a is a captive slave from Israel. She has compassion on Nahum and says, uh, why doesn't my master go to Samaria in my, in my land of Israel? And there's a prophet there that could heal him. Well, Nahum is, he's in desperate straits. So he goes to his boss, the king of Aram, and he says, I need to go to Israel. Would you let me go? And he says, by all means, go. I don't want to lose my right-hand man. And so he writes him a letter to the king of Israel and says, I'm sending to you Nahum. Please help him be cured of his leprosy. Nahum comes before the king, and uh, he expects a certain uh, he expects a, a certain response. Now, notice that Nahum does not go to the prophet, Elisha, that the servant girl was talking about. Surely Elisha is below Nahum. He's just a prophet, no, no, no big name. He's from this little town of Israel. No, he's a Nah. The king is more his type of people. He goes straight to the top. But he doesn't get the response that he expected. He thought the red carpet would be rolled out, and he thought he'd receive anything that he needed for help. But but the king says, what are you doing? Why are you coming to me like this? He tears his robe. He says, am I God that I can heal a man of his leprosy? Uh, Nahum is ticked off. This is not the response that uh, he as expected. The king of Israel, his top is uh, blown off. He's upset that this guy has even come to him. His response must have been such a radical response that it made the morning papers. Somehow uh, Elisha heard 
that the king had torn his robe and gotten upset, and he, so he sends a letter to the king, send the man to me, and then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel, that there is a God who can heal. So the next day, Nahum goes to Elisha's house, surely a house on the edge of town in a, uh, in a small village, and knocks on his door. Now, I am sure that, uh, again, Nahum's pride is that he has going to be received with such gratitude. Oh, Nahum, so good to see you. I'm, I'm honored to be in your presence. No, no one even comes to the door. Knocks again. The prophet knows he's coming. The prophet has uh, sent word that, to send him his way. But Elisha's not going to play this game. In fact, Elisha sees through Nahum and he recognizes this is a prideful man. This is a man that is coming not only himself, but he's got a whole entourage with him, horses and chariots and all the army with him. He's got an entourage that would make a hip-hop artist jealous. I mean, there, there, there's some people with him. He's brought all of his goods. It says he's got gold and silver. Like you think of a mob mo movie with a suitcase full of cash. Nahum comes. Uh, he's, he's got some pride. He's got 10 sets of clothing. What does he need 10 sets of clothing? Armani suits, Gucci shoes, <laughs> Jordans, whatever it is. Uh, he, you, you begin to see the pride of this man. And finally, somebody comes to the door, and it's just Elisha's servant. Reads him a note like it reads from a Betty Crocker cookbook. No pizzazz. Go to the Jordan River. Dip yourself in it seven times, and you will be uh, healed. What does it say? Nahum's response is, he is enraged. I'm not going to do that. The dirty Jordan River, there's, uh, there's better rivers in uh, Damascus. I'm not going to go down in that river. I'm not going to lower myself into that river. Now, we get really hard on Nahum because uh, we see the pride in this guy and we wonder how could he uh, respond like that. But before we get too critical, we ought to hold the mirror on ourselves for a second. How often do we get upset when people don't treat us the way that we want to be treated? We get angry. We get frustrated. Uh, we might not lash out at someone, though we do that at times as well. Maybe it's a passive-aggressive anger. Maybe it's just holding a grudge for a long time. But we get so angry because people do not treat us the way that we expect to be treated. In fact, uh, Nahum's not only upset with Elijah, he's upset with Elijah's God. I thought Elijah would come up and offer up this magnificent prayer, wave my hand over my spot of leprosy, and God would heal me that way. And sometimes we get upset with God. God, how come you're not treating me the way that I want to be treated? I know this is right. I know that I haven't done wrong. I know that I'm justified in my behavior. Why am I still suffering in this way or that way? And we get upset. We get upset with others, and we get upset with God. And it's because it's rooted in some sort of level of pride that we feel like we've got an image, that we've accomplished something, that we ought to be treated in this way or that way.
Now, praise the Lord that there are a couple of Nahum's servants that come to him and speak some truth. Nahum, my father, if the prophet would have asked you to do something great, like climb a mountain or offer some large sacrifice in the temple, would you not have done it? But because he asks you to do something lowly, why is it that you won't dip yourself in the Jordan and be healed? And praise the Lord that God brings people and circumstances into our lives to break us of our pride. God causes difficulty in our lives, or or God sends uh, messengers, whether they feel like they're gracious messengers or not, but there are times when, when God, by his grace, sends people into our lives or sends circumstances into our lives to help us to realize that we need to humble ourselves and surrender and submit to the Lord, and that's an act of grace. And maybe you're here this morning, and, and this sermon is that breaking point for you. You look at the, what's going on in your marriage or with your kids or with your friend or your coworker or whatever it is, and you recognize, I need to lay down my defenses. I need to lower my defenses, lay down my pride because I have been causing strife simply because I want to win this argument. And praise the Lord when we don't seek to win the argument, but we seek a win for the kingdom of God. It might feel like a loss in the moment, but the kingdom of God wins. Nahum hears what his servants have to say, and and he goes to the Jordan River, and he goes down in. Seven times, number of perfection in the Bible. And the first time, he is not healed physically. He goes in and he comes back out. Leprosy is still on his skin. He goes down the second time, nothing happens. He's not being healed physically yet, but he is being healed spiritually with each dip in the water. Third time down, I can just imagine the servants on the side of the river. God, please help this to work because this guy's going to be a misery to travel with back to Aram. He's going to be so mad. Fourth time goes down, nothing. It's not till the seventh time it comes down and his skin is cleansed. Soft as a baby's bottom, as we say. Says soft as a young man's skin, but if we were to reword it today, soft as a baby's bottom. I mean, it's perfect. He's been restored, but before he could be restored physically, he had to be uh, healed spiritually. And so often that is the case in our lives, that when we wrestle with relationships, when we wrestle with difficulties, it's because the Lord needs to do something in our hearts first. Am I right? That's oftentimes the way that it goes. If you were to lower your defenses, what kind of healing do you desire? Perhaps it's with your marriage. Perhaps it's with your parents or your kids. Perhaps it's uh, with a relationship that you have with someone at work or or you want to be a witness to a friend. But right now the Lord is calling you to lower your defenses so that you can receive healing. I think this is the example of our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus, on the night when he went before Pontius Pilate, 
uh, before he was crucified, he received all kinds of accusations. False accusations, by the way. It didn't matter if they were true or not. Jesus himself did not try to defend himself. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, that last sentence is, is the foundation for why he didn't feel the need to defend himself. Because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When we entrust ourselves to the Lord, we understand that our lives are in his hands. He is the one that defends us. He is the one that watches over us and protects us. Our lives are found in him. It doesn't even matter if we're right or wrong because we could feel like we're very right in whatever it is. It is that we entrust the Lord that if it is his will, then whatever the Lord wants to be done will be done. And so here we are this morning. If we are followers of Jesus, and we are coming before the Lord and we are saying, God, your will in my life be done. God, my life is found in your hands. I'm living for you. I am a child of yours. May you protect me. May you watch my back. May you uh, watch over me. When we are in Christ and we live for him alone, I want to give us three truths. One is that you have nothing to protect. You have nothing to protect we feel like we need to protect ourselves. We feel like we need to protect our reputation. We, need, we feel like we need to, to make sure our comfort is, is held in high regard. But if the Lord is our lives, we have nothing to protect. We have nothing to possess. Feel like you got a, some important possessions? You got a house. You got a car. You, you got a family. You, you, you got a job. Guess what? It all ultimately belongs to the Lord. He, it's in his hand. He's entrusted you to, with it. You're to be a good steward. You're not to be careless or reckless. But it really belongs to the Lord, and his will be done, whatever that is. You have nothing to protect. You have nothing to possess. You have nothing to prove. Because your life is found in Jesus. You are a child of his. You live for an audience of one. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, nothing to protect, nothing to possess, nothing to prove. That's, that's hard, right? That's a life of surrender. That's a life of humility. This goes against our natural reaction. Like I said, our natural reaction is dig our heels in, defend ourselves. This, this is a life of surrender. This is a life of humility. This really is a life of discipleship. To recognize I've got nothing to protect. God's going to uh, protect me. I've got nothing to possess. I'm not going to watch over anything. If it's his, he, his will be done. I've got nothing to prove. I'm not going to try to justify my own behavior if it's motivated out of my pride. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have an image to protect. I don't have a reputation to watch over. Uh, the Lord is over my life. And so we surrender to him. It might feel like a loss, but it's a win for the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard was my favorite professor. 
I had Dallas, uh, he, in fact, he asked us to call him Dallas because he was a man of humility. I had Dallas while I was a student at uh, Fuller Seminary. And I remember one time uh, we were in class, and it was towards the end of class, and someone raised his hand, and, and he just began to try to bash, try to bring down everything that the professor had said. And, uh, and, he was, uh, and he was trying to demolish the professor's argument in such a way that would embarrass the professor. And, uh, and so this guy went off on this long rant, and when he was finally done, Dallas said, this feels like a good place to end class today. And I thought, what are you doing? Put this guy in his place. How could he come and try to embarrass you in front of the whole class? And I thought, why, uh, why are you letting this guy? He's clearly wrong. Uh, uh, take him to town. And I heard someone go up to him after class, and, uh, and I overheard him say, uh, Dallas, why didn't you put this guy in his place? And here was Dallas's response. Today I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. I thought, ooh, that's good. Today I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. Now, that's lowering your defenses. That's living in humility. So perhaps today, God is calling you to practice the discipline of not having the last word. Perhaps he's calling you the, to the discipline of listening for a long time before you speak. Perhaps he's calling you to the discipline of loving someone unconditionally. Perhaps he's calling you to the discipline of seeing things from someone else's perspective, putting yourself in their shoes. Perhaps he's calling you to the discipline of forgiving, and then truly forgiving, not holding a grudge against that person. Perhaps he's calling you to the discipline of not trying to control every situation. Perhaps he's calling you to the discipline of trusting God even when you don't understand what God is doing. You see, all these are disciplines of lowering our defenses and being humble before the Lord. Humility is hard, but it's at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because what we're, we're doing when we humble ourselves is we're saying, my life is found in God's hands. I'm not going to try to hold my life in my own hands and, and control it myself, but I'm going to let the Lord have control of my life. I'm going to lower my defenses. I'm going to trust in him, and then I'm going to let God bring the healing into my life that he wants to bring. Just as Nahum was healed, not on the first dip, but on the seventh dip, the, the Lord brings healing into our lives, especially into our relationships. As I said, there are times where we do need to dig in our heels, and we need to fight for what is right, but make sure that when you do, that that uh, digging in your heels and fighting for what is right is not rooted in pride, but is rooted in the kingdom of God and what the Lord uh, wants us to do. As we prepare for communion, I'm reminded of 
uh, story of humility from the life of, of Jesus. You know, when Jesus, what we do here at the table is we're remembering that Jesus lowered himself and became obedient, even uh, being obedient to the point of death on the cross. And uh, while Jesus was on earth and he was uh, headed towards the cross, he was oftentimes attracted to people that were humble. And, uh, and he's the same way today. We, we find grace in our relationship with him when we take a posture of humility. Uh, one day, Jesus is go, traveling through Jerusalem, and uh, there's a Pharisee uh, in the center of the temple courts, and man, this guy is praying a prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like these other people. I uh, thank you that I give uh, so much to you. Thank you that I'm always obedient and I keep all the law. And thank you that I'm especially not like that tax collector over there. And he points his finger, and there's a tax collector standing on the edge of the temple courts. And uh, Jesus notices the tax collector, and the tax collector has a hard time even lifting his eyes to heaven. And he's on the edge of the courts, and, and the tax collector's prayer is nothing like the Pharisee's prayer. The tax collector's prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looks at the Pharisee, and he looks at the tax, tax collector, and he says, Two prayers, that's the prayer that pleases me. And I think that as we gather before the uh, communion table, this is an opportunity for us to pray that prayer of humility. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we talk about lowering our defenses, and, and uh, uh, part of it is to have mercy upon ourselves. We have to realize that it's okay not to be okay. That if we are to give mercy to others, we have to also understand, I don't got it all together. I'm a sinner. I need the mercy of God. And when we, when we adopt that, position, that posture of humility and receive the mercy of God, then it actually opens up the door that we can give mercy to others. That's that, that's that, that plays into the idea of lowering our defenses and, and, uh, and, and giving grace and mercy to others. And so as we have a time of meditation here this morning, I invite you to uh, pray that prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To receive the mercy of God. To understand that it's okay if you come this morning and you're broken, in fact, that's a good thing. Because then we are opening ourselves up for the healing hand of God in our lives and in our relationships. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we, we thank you that, first of all, that God, in, in some way that's hard for us to get our minds around. You are a humble God. <laughs> the God who has created the universe simply by speaking it into, the, into being. The God who possesses all majesty, who is completely holy, that the angels bow down and worship. Somehow, God, uh, you don't think too highly of yourself as if that's possible to do. But God, in your humility, in your confidence, 
in yourself, Jesus was able to come and to take on the form of a, of a man, to humble himself. And God, we pray that we would be like Jesus, that we would lay aside our own glory, that we would lay aside our, def- our uh, pride, that we would lower our defenses so that we could receive from you. God, as we gather around this communion table, we come before you as sinners in need of mercy. And God, this is a reminder that we don't got it all together, but that's okay because we come before you who does have it all together and you give us your righteousness. And so God, we rest in you, not trying to defend ourselves, but relying on you as the defender of us. God, thank you for this time to just simply spend some time in your presence to lay our burdens at your feet and to receive your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Did everyone receive the communion elements? Raise your hand. Let's take the wafer together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. God's word goes on to say, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll invite the prayer counselors to come forward at this time. Father God, we thank you that we get to gather around this communion table and remember that you have died for our sins, that your body was broken and your blood was shed uh, because we are sinners and that you have given us mercy. 
And God, I pray that as we continue to try to grow in our faith, that we would rest firmly in your love. That we would recognize that everything we have and need is found in our relationship with you. So thank you, God, that we have nothing to possess, nothing to protect, nothing to prove, because you've done it all for us and you continue to do it. We rest in your hands. In Jesus' name. Amen.